Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. I'm so glad to be with you. City on a Hill, it's great to be worshiping alongside you and giving glory to God together. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Tom Richter. I get to be part of the teaching team here at City on a Hill. We are in the middle, as you know, Pastor Linda has already alluded to this. We are in the middle of that season between Thanksgiving and Christmas that the church has designated the season of eating. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, has it already started? I mean, yeah. So I don't have an office space, like a a study at a church. We rent space for our church. And so we rent space for office space during the week. Basically, so we don't have a copier in my son's bedroom uh, is is why we do that. Why churches do that. You know, it's a blessing. And it'd be fine if we did have a copier in a bed. But, you know, whatever. And so we rent space actually in an attorney's office. And so it's like all these attorneys. And if the lawsuits and all that stuff doesn't work, then there's the preacher. So I have like my own little office there. But I've never been a part of an office world until the last couple of years as we've been renting the space. But man, it's a real thing. Like every day there's these cookies and all these like trays of goodies and people like, hey, you know, I just dropped this off, you know, whatever. And it's all this stuff. And people are like, you got to help us eat this. Uh, it's unbelievable. And so the, uh, the sermon today is on gluttony. And this is the part in the sermon where most people are like, Tom's kidding, obviously. Ha ha, and now we'll move on. But I'm not kidding. The sermon today is on gluttony. And some of you haven't been to church in a long time. And you're like, are you kidding me? I show up on gluttony Sunday? Tragic, right? I am going to preach on gluttony. And I'm going to preach on gluttony, not just because we're in a season of excess... But because I'm in a series on 1 Timothy chapter 4 and what was happening in 1 Timothy 4 way back then about restraining our appetites is no different in 1 Timothy's day in Ephesus than it is today. So let's talk a little bit about gluttony. Gluttony is one of those sins and I think one of the, re- well there's a couple reasons maybe we don't preach on it too much. One is it's kind of like as a Baptist preacher, you know, the, that it's sometimes a struggle for those of us who overindulge, you know, to, to preach on it with a straight face. But I think the real reason is gluttony is one of those sneaky sins. It's a sneaky sin. Here's what I mean. Everybody would know. Everybody would immediately know right off the bat, gluttony, we always, we recognize as the overconsumption of something, right? Food or drink. The idea that we overindulge just in gross ways. And so if I put up, like everybody would go, oh yeah, that, that's gluttony. Nailed it. Now this is a Krispy Kreme burger. You know what I'm realizing? Yeah. So that's a Krispy Kreme donut on top and a donut on the bottom serving as the bun for a bacon cheeseburger. I'm, 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 here's what I'm realizing. I put this up here so that you would go, oh, I see you're driving home a clear sermon illustration that everyone would say that's gluttony. And some of you are going to see that and go, I see what you're doing. You're illustrating the point. But others of you are like, now there's an idea. Which was not my intent to like put sinful thoughts in your heart. Uh, 
My point is simple, that everybody would agree, that's ridiculous. That's more calories than you're supposed to eat in a week, and it's all right there on one burger. Everybody would agree. If you put pictures like that, you go, everybody agrees, this is obviously gluttony. No but, no question. This is, a, you know, that is a fried ball of macaroni and cheese serving as the bun between two bacon burgers. Everybody gets that. Now, in, in Scripture... In, yeah, stop! Stop texting me for the recipe. <laughs> Stay focused, people. I know. I usually don't lose. I don't. You don't normally lose the whole audience till later in the message. You don't normally derail this. <laughs> James, this is gluten free. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. It will kill you in so many ways, but wheat germ will not be one of the ways you die. Now, in the Bible, just so you know, when they talk about gluttony, it's almost always linked to drunkenness, the idea of excess. And so if I, you know, if that, if, if this guy's about to go to work on all that, everybody in here, does everybody understand my point? Everybody in here goes, duh, that's gluttony. I didn't even know what, that's just, those are, that's a diabetes sandwich. It's just a, uh, a, a McDiabetes. So everybody gets it, right? Everybody knows that's all, that's all gluttony. Here's why gluttony is such a sneaky sin. Everybody can look at that and go, whoo, sermon's not about me. I have only eaten two or three of those examples, you know, today. So everybody gets like, oh, that's not about me, whatever. Here's why gluttony is so sneaky. Gluttony is not just that. It's not the overindulgence and all that gross stuff we all get that. But did you ever think of this? Did you ever think this could be gluttony? It must be just the right cup of coffee. See, not just watch this, watch this, not just, not just gluttony of excess, you see what I'm getting at? But gluttony of, of, of delicacy, gluttony of, the idea of gluttony is simply being controlled by your appetites, regardless of the cost to yourself, regardless of cost to anybody else, I want just the right cup of coffee, and I won't be satisfied by anything less. Coffee would do, you know, it would give me the, the beverage I need, and it would give me the caffeine or whatever it is, but it's got to be just the right. Can you see how you're still being driven by appetites? Even though it's not a gross amount or, a, you know, some huge amount of calories, it's still you're being driven by your appetite. And I'm going to get real personal right now. I'm going to get all up in your business now. Some of you, it's, no, 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 it's got to be just the right bagel. And there's only a few bagel places on the planet that can do it just right. Your bagel is garbage. I know you will actually, I'm looking at you Long Island, you will actually drive. You will actually fly to other cities. Some of you will travel for the holidays. And you'll find yourself in other parts of this country. And the, these words will come out of your mouth. You know, you can't get a good bagel here. Whoa, 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 wait for it. Wait, wait, wait for it. Here, wait for it. You know, it's the water. You are saying that to inhabitants of a city whose water has served them well for thousands of years. They're all, you notice, totally alive. Yet you will look at them and be like, well, this is garbage. I mean, the sewage water you have, you can't... And I know you say that stuff because I've said it. Like, I've... Right? But it's got to be just the right bagels. Everybody understand what I'm getting at? Gluttony is not just what you think. Oh, I'm over-consuming. But gluttony can be delicacy. It can be just the right cup of coffee. Just the right bagel. Or let's even get beyond food. Our appetites for stuff. Where we say it's got to be just the right product. And Android is of the devil. And anything else, you know, I won't, it's got to be just... You see what's happening? Of course. Of course. Of course. C.S. Lewis gets this 
perfectly. Listen to his illustration taken from the screw tape letters. Gluttony can mean delicacy, not just excess. Take, for example, a woman who's always turning from what's been offered her to say with a demure little sigh and smile, Oh, please, please, all I want is a proper cup of tea that is weak, but not too weak, and the teensiest, weensiest bit of really perfectly crisp toast. Is that too much to ask? You see? Because what she wants is smaller and less costly than what's been set before her. She never recognizes as gluttony her determination to get what she wants, however troublesome it may be to others. Here's Lewis at his best. At the very moment of indulging her appetite, she actually thinks she's practicing temperance. Now her belly dominates her whole life. And she can't see it because she's not eating a Texas State Fair mac and cheese fried burger. She goes, I don't struggle with gluttony. When her appetites, watch this everybody, her appetites are dominating her life. Is that not a word for 2015? I mean, we think of gluttony as this medieval sin. When your appetites dominate your life, you're struggling with the sin of gluttony. That was no difference in, 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 the, in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy as it, is, as it is in 2015. So I wrote this as the definition of gluttony. And this is just Tom's theological dictionary of interesting terms from the Bible. This isn't, I didn't get this out anywhere. It's just my hunch as to what the Bible would say about gluttony if it was in dictionary form. Gluttony, our determination to get what our appetites demand, regardless of the cost to ourselves or to others. See? So the question, of course, is how do you solve it? Like, okay, Tom, I get it. Like, that, yes. If, if you're here and you're convinced that it's not just eating grossly tons of amount of food, though that's part of it, but, but any kind of being driven by our appetites, okay then, what's the corrective? What do we do? What's the, what's the sermon here? And the solution that I would be tempted to give to you today, the solution that was offer, offered to the people at Ephesus by these quote-unquote teachers 2,000 years ago, Paul hears that solution being taught and writes this letter and says the solution to gluttony that's being taught to your people, Timothy, is downright demonic. It's satanic. It's not just wrong. It's from the pits of hell. And the solution that they offered to gluttony was as follows. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what he says. Paul writes to Timothy. Now, first of all, he says, don't be surprised. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Here, I think he's referring to some teachings of Jesus, where Jesus even said, hey, there's coming a day when there's going to be people who rise up, and they're going to claim to prophesy in my name, and all this stuff. This is not a surprise. In later days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul's not pulling any punches. He's saying, this is demon teaching. And the medium through which the demons teach are these teachers whose consciences have just been completely anesthetized. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now let me ask you, what in the world was this teaching that is so bad that Paul would call it demonic? I mean, as a corrective offered to people being driven by their appetites, because I think that's a real problem. 
I sense it in my own life. I know in my own church, people are driven by their appetites. And that is a path to destruction. We've got to experience self-control. We've got to live lives that are pleasing to God. Not just giving whatever my belly wants or whatever my lustful eyes of the flesh. I want this phone. I want this car. I want this new house. I agree. That's a problem. What would be so bad that Paul would call it demonic teaching. He tells you, here it is. This is the teaching. This is the thing that has come from these uh, 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 deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Here it is, of all things. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from food. Not what I would have predicted. Like, if you set it up with, like, here's some demon teaching, you expect they're going to worship the devil and burn things, and, you know, it's going to be all this crazy occult practices... No, uh, what he calls teaching from the pits of hell is, you ready? Ascetic legalism. He says that's the soul decaying, rotting stuff of the enemy. Who would try to correct your life with ascetic legalism. Let me explain. Those are, those are theologically, those are big, big words. And so I'm going to unpack them. Asceticism and legalism. You need to understand what these two words mean to understand the sermon. The false teachers came into Ephesus and tried to correct these people who needed some self-control. They tried to correct them with asceticism and legalism. Sort of a, a combination of those things. And Paul says that's of the devil. So here we go from Tom's Theological Dictionary of Interesting Theological Terms. Asceticism. I define asceticism as trying to impress God by ascribing moral value to how well you can deny yourself stuff. The, the, the desert ascetics were these monks who would go out in the desert and anything that was remotely pleasurable, they would deny. They would, in fact, like whip themselves to make penance for their sin. What are they trying to do? They're trying to say, see, God, see, see how much we've impressed you. We've denied ourselves all kinds of pleasure. And in this way, we'll, we'll be able to overcome our gluttonous and appetite desires. And I put a, a little note. The more desirable the pleasure denied, for example, marriage or eating certain foods, the more bonus God points you get. In, in, in asceticism, that's basically what it's taught. If you really want to be holy, it's best to be miserable. That's asceticism. Really, in a nutshell, that's asceticism, right? Everybody with me? That's a, so that's, that's religious asceticism. Making it completely taboo. And so what they told him was, hey, 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 guys, guys. The reason you're struggling, anybody here struggling with sin? This false teacher is so smooth, so slick. And Paul called him right on the carpet, knew him. They'd come in and say, anybody, anybody struggling with sin? No, I'm not sin. Is one of your sins not being able to like control your appetite? Anybody here, not just with food, but like you find out with other things? Yes. Any of you got kids? You find they're a little bit like little Mr. Grabby hands. Gimme, 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 gimme. Especially around the holidays. Yes, false teacher of Ephesus, go on with what you're speaking. My kids are like, gotta have the Jordan toga. I, I get it. I get it. You know the way to stop all that? Cut it off completely. No more rich foods, ever. And if you really want to be close to God, amen. if you really want the secret to godliness, don't read the scriptures. You don't need the scriptures. This is what I'm teaching you. You really want the secret of godliness. Deny yourself. See, it's all about the spirit. So all material things are bad. Deny yourself any enjoyment from any material thing. And married people, you shouldn't even touch your spouse because it's the spiritual union that really makes you close to God. 
So like, you know, no kind of, any kind of physical pleasure, any kind of, any kind of, kind of uh, good food and rich foods, deny yourself that. And that's the secret path to attain like the, the true holiness of God. You see that? It's a cult. That's classic cult teaching. Anytime somebody says, listen, don't listen to the scriptures, I'll give you the real path to God. You need to run out of a building. Don't walk. Don't, I mean, you can fake it and be like, I got to take a call. But just get out, okay? Because you're in a cult, man. And that's what was happening to Ephesus. They were, no, 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 no. It's, it's spiritual. And so you need to deny yourself all these things. Cut them off completely. They're, in fact, they're religiously taboo. And that's asceticism. Then with that, they got that Eastern kind of asceticism where it's like the, the material is bad. It's all about spiritual. Mixed with good old-fashioned Jewish Pharisee, Pharisees legalism. And this is where the, the deadly cocktail comes together. Asceticism, but also legalism is now taking that scorecard. Here's how you please God. And enforcing on yourself, and let's be honest, usually on others, your man-made system of getting God to like you. That's legalism. Now, who is most susceptible to ascetic legalism? Who is this attractive to? For whom is this the most attractive way to get closer to God? I think it's for new believers. I think it's for people who are new to all this. And that certainly would have been Timothy's crowd there in Ephesus. But isn't it true? Take, take a simple example. The people who can be the most legalistic about something are the ones who just came out of something else. So, so for example, have you ever gone out to dinner with that friend who just started their brand new fad diet? Aren't they the worst? Because they're looking at you while you're enjoying your food with nothing but judgment. And they're looking at you like, how can you? I mean, they're sitting there eating organic tree bark. And they're looking at you going, how can you possibly put that garbage in your body, right? And you're looking at them like, I'm doing it the same way you did it a week ago, right? I'm doing it with great gusto. Thank you. And they're looking at you, well, I, I don't need anything that casts a shadow. <laughs> what? Little microbes. <laughs> like, Why? Because they just got pulled out of something, they're now tempted to go way into something else. What, what, what Paul's calling ascetic legal, I mean, what Paul is calling these teachers who deny all this stuff, what they're guilty of is a problem called overcorrecting. See, they're overcorrecting. On the one hand is gluttony and being driven by your appetites. That's bad. That's sin. Fine. But what these teachers do is they overcorrect into something worse. Anybody been driving down the road? gently drift off onto the right side of the road, right? So we're, we're driving down the road, right? And we are just not paying attention and we drift. And especially on the highways, they got those rumble strips, you know, right? Kind of wake you up, right? Or your, your wife, hey, hey, you know, or whatever it is, you know. What are you supposed to do in that moment, right? You just are supposed to gently bring yourself back in the line, right? There's a real problem if you do something called overcorrect. If you panic, now you've gone from falling into a ditch into now you're in oncoming traffic of a semi-trailer. One will put your car in a ditch. One, you'll take yourself out and take others out. That's Paul's point. When it comes to spirituality, some of you are trying to miss the ditch of gluttony by overcorrecting into the oncoming semi-tractor trailer of ascetic legalism. One will leave you spiritually wounded. The other will leave you spiritually dead. And that's what he said. This is from the pits of hell. There's a way to go about correcting human behavior and correcting the heart. And legalism is not it. And it will, it will destroy you and it will destroy others. 
It's asceticism. It's legalism. It's not what we're about. But but I get that it's attractive. It's especially attractive to new believers. One of the reasons legalism is so attractive is there's a really clean scorecard. You you can tell exactly where everybody is in their walk with God with legalism. Because you've picked out, these are the things that God really cares about and you're doing them and you're not. So now we all know. Now we all know who's holy and who's not. See? And we usually pick things on the scorecard, by the way, that we're already good at. You know, so that we happen to always be on the cat. That's what the Pharisees did. Legalism empowers a few and leaves everybody else out in the cold, right? But there's some attractiveness to that. Listen to what Colossians, Paul deals with the same group of people in Colossians. Apparently they, they follow him a lot. Here's what he had to say about it. He says to him in the letter to Colossians, if, he's telling them, if, Christ, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if, you still, as if you were still alive in this world, do you submit to their regulations? Do not handle, that was their message. Do not taste, do not even touch, don't even get near it, right? Don't, not only can, are these foods taboo, you can't even eat foods that have touched that food. Paul's saying, come on, they're referring to things that all perish as they're used according to just, it's human precepts, it's human teachings. And here's, I like this. He says, look, I'm not going to deny it. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, there's that word, severity of the body. But what? But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What's Paul's point? If you try to correct your problem of gluttony, if you try to correct your problem of, of being driven by your appetites with legalism and asceticism, Paul says, for one thing, it's very complicated. Rules just lead to more rules, right? I mean, if, if you're living your life by legalism, by a series of rules, what, what part of that is nobody can agree on all the rules, and you need books and books of rules to explain the rules. But that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is not that it makes you your own savior. The biggest problem is not that it creates pride and envy among others. The biggest problem is, and this is a big one, it doesn't work. Look, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You create all this legalistic asceticism to overcome your gluttony, and in the end, it just doesn't work. Everybody in here has experienced that. If you've ever made a New Year's resolution, you get it. Willpower doesn't work. Setting yourself a bunch of rules doesn't work. Cutting off a particular food. Have you ever done that on a diet where you're like, the one thing I must not eat is name that food. Then what happens? A week goes by, and it's all you obsess over. It's all you think about, right? Why? Because it doesn't, it's, it doesn't cut it. It doesn't work that way. So is there another way? Is there a way to go into this holiday season? I mean, boy, talk about Thanksgiving and Christmas as being a timely place to talk about the need to not be driven by our appetites. Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to correct that error without overcorrecting into legalism? I mean, the sermon could have been over 10 minutes ago if I just said, here's five legalistic ways to avoid being gluttonous this holiday season. Go. But it wouldn't have worked. Is there a way to do it? Yes. And it's right here in the next verse. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, look what he says. Actually, yeah, if you you look at verse 3, they forbid marriage, they require absence from food. Here it is, here it is. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth receive with thanksgiving. This is going to form a key answer. How do you correct without overcorrecting? Can you say those three words with me? Receive with thanksgiving. Thanks for doing that. Receive with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He goes on. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected. I'm going to need your help again. If it is, receive with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God. 
and prayer. You see that phrase twice, received with thanksgiving. What does that mean? A way to correct without overcorrecting is simply this. Give thanks for the food that's before you. Now, I think that this verse means ask a blessing before a meal. In other words, I think that this passage, gratitude, is more than that, certainly, but I don't think it's, it's, it's like not less than that. Here's what I mean. Some of you are note takers and you're looking for like, where's the really practical application? Here it is. This is as practical as I can get. Do you say thanks to God, bowing your head before you eat your meal? And if you don't, will you start? Because people are like, well, that was a great sermon. How do I put it in practice? So if you're going to have lunch today, pray and thank God before that meal. I'll be out in public. Well, it's okay. Like, that's the weirdest thing you've done in public. Bro, I mean, you want to go there? Come on. Like, you, you got bigger problems. So, okay, pray, you know, before your meal. And then tonight, you know, now, now if you come up to me and you say, well, I, Tom, I don't know what constitutes a meal. I mean, like, what if it's like just a box of Cheez-Its? Do I pray, or the appetizer? You may have missed my earlier talk on legalism. <laughs> I don't know. And, and uh, I don't, you know, when in doubt, pray, sure. I mean, I guess for Cheez-Its, make it quick. Cheez-Its aren't actually real food, so you don't have to give a real prayer, I guess. Yeah, so you're good there, sure, sure. Everybody understand what I'm saying? That, that is one application, literally, of what he's talking about. And when you do that, see, one of the most humble things you do every day is in, in, enjoy a meal. And, and I say humble because sometimes you, you don't even enjoy it, you're eating here. It's something that you do every day, unless you're in a season of fasting or for some reason. You, you, you're eating every day, and... and by praying before you eat, what you're doing is you're taking that simple act and you're making it a holy moment. That's what verse 5 means when it says you sanctify. It's made holy by the word of God and prayer. Literally, he's talking about a blessing. Uh, have you ever heard somebody say, um, uh, uh, ask the blessing, or I'm going to ask a blessing over the food, or say the blessing over the food, or if you've ever seen... Uh, one of my favorite Christmas movies. They want you to ask the blessing. I may be all alone. That's a, a quote from A Christmas Carol. I'm <laughs> kidding, it's not. Anyway, that the reason people say ask the blessing, it comes from scripture because that's what Jesus would have done. There was blessings Jesus would have said before his meal. Now, I'll go ahead. This is Hebrew. This is the Hebrew blessing over bread. There's different blessings over the cup, the different blessings. But, but here's one, and I'll go ahead and translate from the Hebrew. I'll translate this. Uh, blessed are you, I'm just kidding, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. That's a simple blessing. That's why when people say, give a blessing over the food, they're doing what Jesus did. Now, when he says, Lord our God, King of the universe, these are phrases that are found in scripture. Again, that's what verse five means. This is made holy by the word of God in prayer. I think at the very least, what he's saying is give thanks, make it a habit. You do not outgrow this practice. Uh, Fun fact about me, there is not a time in my life that I can ever remember where my family has not prayed before meal. That, that, that time does not exist in my world. There's just, there's, there has never been a time where that's been a reality. Okay? My kids will say the same thing when they grow up, right? I have not outgrown that. If you say, man, I wish that were my story, why not make that your story from this day forward? Why not? And then then your children and your grandchildren and so forth will say, you know what, we prayed before every meal. And then it becomes this blessing, this good habit. 
how, okay, but how does, that res- how does that restrain our appetite? Like, how does that keep us from being legalistic? Saying grace, receiving with thanksgiving. Because that's my whole point, is that gratitude is the way to overcome gluttony, not legalism. But how? I think, I'm going to hang out here on verse, uh, verse 4 for a second. I think, I think that the answer lies, it's twofold. When you are grateful for your food, when you're grateful for what God has put before you, grateful for your phone, grateful for your clothing, grateful for the house you have, instead of always grabbing for other things, I think it slows down the gluttonous impulse a little bit. When you take time to notice the good things you have, you stop being so concerned about what you don't have. It sort of puts the brakes on that. And I'll say a good word for our culture, which has happened once in the last 10 billion sermons of mine. And I realize I can be a little... There is common grace in the world that sometimes I'm a little slow to notice. But God's grace really is everywhere. And I'll tell you a good thing I've noticed about our culture. This Thanksgiving, I noticed not one, but several uh, businesses advertising, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and stay closed on Thanksgiving Day. And we'll open up again on Black Friday. And I thought, you know what? Good for common sense, ruling the day. <laughs> like, you know, you don't need First Timothy 4 to know it's real hard to be thankful for what you got when you're in line fighting somebody else for that PlayStation 4, right? It's really hard to be thankful for the Xbox you already own, right? And I thought that's something that perhaps others realized this Thanksgiving as well. It's a good thing. So, so that, that's, that's one way. When you celebrate the goodness of God, and can I just say, Christians have this amazing theology that, that creation is good. God made a good world. And as much as it's fallen and been broken and twisted and marred by sin, there's so much goodness in God's original creation that God's goodness still shines in all that's fair. I mean, are any of you nature lovers? Don't you agree with me when you go outside and aren't these days, these are, that's a December day out there, BT Dubs, right? You got to give some, I was going to say props, but you got to give glory. They're his props. The point is, uh, you celebrate God's goodness in heaven and on earth. It's Eastern mystic religions that tell us we must escape the material world, even our bodies. The immaterial is good and bodies are evil. Nothing could be further from the truth. Christians can celebrate all the goodness in creation, all the goodness of God in stars and flowers and vegetables and animals and seas and rivers and forests and gender and marriage and sex and family and food and friends. He shines in all that is good and fair. And when he does, when, as, as Christmas... G.K. Chesterton has this great quote. When you do that, when you think of the goodness of what he's given you, G.K. Chesterton has a very interesting quote about gluttony. He says, we should thank God for beer and burgundy by not drinking too much of them. Isn't that interesting? He's saying a way to show respect to the good gifts of God is just that, respect for their goodness. That's actually my message to young people when we talk about chastity and purity before marriage. Why do I preach true love waits? And like Tim Tebow and his ministry, hey, it's okay to be proud of the fact that you've saved yourself physically for marriage. Why is that such a big deal? Because sex is evil and bad and wrong? No, because it's a good gift and therefore must be enjoyed in God's proper context for his good gifts. See, It's not because it's evil. It's because it's good. And a good and loving God, why wouldn't a preacher want the best for the next generation? Not second best or worst, see? This is a, a important for Christmas, too, because um, 
uh, it's a matter of overemphasis. <clears throat> Here's what I mean. I've said it, I've preached it, we've all said it, and I, I read an article this week that corrected something that I've been saying. So I've, I've said it, Christmas has just gotten so material, so material. You agree with me? Man, so material. Christmas is just so material. And I read an article, and they were like, that is a really good message to a group of lost worldly people. Stay with me. In other words, if I had nothing in here but like skeptics, maybe even out-and-out pagans, and they were like, I'm just in it for the toys and the presents and you know whatever, I would say, guys, you're missing. It's, ju- it's just material to you, but it's actually spiritual. But here's what I read this week. This author, she convinced me, she wrote, um, uh, if you have a group of Christians, the opposite message may be needed. Hey, Christians, don't forget, Christmas is material. You see her point? It's not just spiritual. And that can be such a cause of stress. I'm talking especially those moms that are looking around going, where's my quiet moment with perfect hot cocoa in front of the manger scene as my little angelic children are singing a choir? I look around and it's a zoo in a train wreck while on fire. Like I'm looking at that as my reality. You know what I mean? Right? And, and Silent Night is, a, is one of the funniest Christmas carols to you in all the world. You're like, Silent Night? Silent, right? Like, I get it. I get it. So let me be of a special word of encouragement to you. What you're seeking is so spiritual. But Christianity, God who is spirit, took on flesh into the train wreck and into the disaster that was that stinky manger. And I don't care how ugly your nativity scene, it wasn't uglier than the real thing. And Jesus Christ was born as a real baby in a real stable, really in Bethlehem. So the message to Christians is, hey, yeah, Christmas is material, but amen. Like Christmas is material. These things matter because God says it matters because they're from God. He's good. And look at what it says. Everything created by God is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Can we take the material things that are created good and use them for simple purposes? Of course. That's the whole point. That's what sin is. But Christians, you'll never hear a Christian say the thing itself is what's evil and bad and wrong. It's what we've done with it. The other posture that's important is the whole created by God thing. When we receive with thanksgiving, this is a posture that says, stay with me, says, I didn't earn it. I didn't, I'm not going to take what's mine. It's not, yeah, God, you know, I, I worked hard all week to earn the paycheck and put this on the table. My wife cooked it and uh, my kids brought it here. So I guess thanks for nothing. I'm just going to eat it, right? You see the posture there? I'm going to take this because ultimately, you know, this is mine. No, 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 no. This says, God, if I have a job, it's you gave it to me at the end of the day. If I have skills to go earn money, where do you think those skills came from? If I've got legs to get out of bed and go walk to work, who do you think you thank for that, right? And who brought me this food? Who gave me these children? Who, you know, who, who gave me a spouse that's really great at, at cooking, you know? Who, who, right? This is all from you, God. So I'm in a posture of receiving. Now watch this. If that's true, if he's the king of the universe and he supplies everything, then watch this. He knows best just how much on my plate I need. Not my belly. I'm establishing the lordship of God even over my dinner. He's lord over everything. And that means I'm going to listen to him. Now, if, you know what? If I need a way to communicate with my friends, i got a phone. I don't need the latest and greatest. My appetite wants it. But I think I can tell my appetite, listen. Listen, Tommy's tummy. 
I know you're used to being CEO. The chief eating officer. I get it. I get it. I get it. And more than just your eating, you've been wanting a lot of things that aren't yours. And, and you don't need them. So this day, CEO, former CEO, you know, there's been a hostile takeover. And the Lord Jesus is going to determine what I need. And not you. And if you can say that to your appetite every day, out of gratitude and submission to lordship, that's going to change you from the inside out in a way that a bunch of legalistic rules never will. That's going to do it. That's the stuff of heaven. That's what God can do in your life. Gratitude and love for Him. A bunch of legalism is still around. There are still, I, I mean, I, I, depending on, you know, your cultural environment, I don't know if you need to hear this or not. My folks uh, have some crazy stuff going on. Just for the record, Jesus in Mark seven nineteen, you can look this up, He literally declared all foods clean. There are still some Christians who are like, I don't know, I mean, what's the deal? Like, shouldn't we be kosher? Shouldn't we? Yeah, you can be, that's fine. But to say that legalistically that somehow gets you a better standing with God, Jesus said it's not, the problem is not what goes into the man, it's what comes out. And in saying, Mark seven nineteen, in saying this, he declared all foods clean. That's right there. I didn't, I didn't say it. That's from Jesus. So receive everything from God with thanksgiving. That's the message. Receive everything from God with thanksgiving. The problem is... Uh, that's a little hard to do. Here's why. <clears throat> this sermon so far has assumed that uh, as you receive everything from God with thanksgiving, the, the, the problem's that word everything. See, so far we've been talking about food, <clears throat> we've talked about pretty good things, like the gifts of God. Um, if you thank God, it, I think you're all going to walk out of here and probably be more encouraged to thank God for the things that you would have put in your life as clear blessings. Like if you walk out of here and you're like, my family, I mean, I'm look, if you're looking around your Christmas table and you're saying family and puppies and rainbows and Skittles and happiness and presents and money in the bank, then I think this sermon's going to be like, thank you, God. My point is you probably would have done that anyway. What if you look around the table this Christmas and you see loss and grief, sadness and sorrow? What if there's somebody around this table that was there last year but is not? What if you look on your plate and you really don't know how you're going to get fed next year? Because you're here and you're going, I don't have that job to be thankful for. What if around your table is nothing but longing and unanswered prayers? Why? How come everybody gets a baby and not me? Why are we walking through the valley of infertility? How come everybody's got this family together and I'm still single? I'm doing everything right. All my friends, they just fornicate and do whatever they need to Here I'm trying to live God's way. And I got nothing. About three or four pages away from that, the same guy wrote, Give thanks in all circumstances. And I'm here to tell you, I don't care how deep you dig, and I don't care how much you try, I'm, I'm telling you, you can't do it. I don't know that you can. I don't know that you can, in your strength, be thankful for those things. However, and this is what makes this a gospel message, what Christians believe is that there was one who was thankful perfectly. Here's our hope. 
there was one who literally looked at his table and saw on it the emblems of his death. There was a supper. There's a story about an actual supper, a physical supper, where he looked down and he saw bread. And that bread made him think about, in just a few hours, his body on a cross. And when he saw that bread, what did he do? This is from Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. And I'm sorry, what's that? He gave thanks. He gave thanks. When nothing before him was but emptiness and brokenness and the wrath of God and all that fear and all that scariness, he gave thanks. He blessed it and he broke it. He said, take, eat, this is my body. And then over the cup, you guessed it. When he took a cup, when he had what? Given thanks. He gave it to him. He said, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. On your own, you cannot just flip a switch and be thankful. But when you see that Jesus was perfectly thankful, that he was broken and cut off so that you and I will never be broken and cut off from God. He lived the life of perfect obedience that we should have lived. You can't, in your own strength, ever be that thankful. I don't think so. But when you behold the risen King Jesus, who was perfectly thankful, what you can do is allow Him to live through you. To change you, to shape you, to mold you. And His strength allows this thing to well up in you. Called gratitude. Not rooted in what you've done, but rooted in what He did on the cross and there at the table what's he doing he's looking around the table and he's giving thanks and only when we see what he has done how he has done it right how he came into the world to save sinners we properly grow thanksgiving gratitude we kind of curb those gluttonous impulses without resorting into legalism we stay centered on Jesus Christ the one who is perfectly obedient through good times and through great sorrow and tragedy. It's perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace. We thank you for the one who changes us from the inside out. Thank you, O oh God, for not leaving us a rule book, but for leaving us supper, remembrance, an empty tomb. Thank you, Lord, for not just leaving us a bunch of legalistic policies try our best to follow. Thanks for leaving us the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit who is here. He's with us, among us, in us. Teaching us and shaping us. Living the life of Christ through us every day. Lord, we pray for that kind of gratitude that stems not in a legalistic willpower but in looking to you this Christmas season. And all the spiritual and material, the spiritual material there on that Christmas morning in Bethlehem. And I pray the same would be true of us. We pray, trusting you for that grace. We can't do it on our own. We need the good news. We don't just need good advice. We pray for that good news to permeate our hearts this Christmas season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.